right, it's always awkward to follow myself. Um, there it is. What a great video, guys. What a great day. You may not know this, so why would you know this? But today is a special and significant day for us as a church because today we turn six years old. Happy birthday, Two Cities Church. I know, we're six years old. We're entering first grade as a church. Isn't that amazing? Guys, uh, it, it really, I say this all the time. I can't believe uh, what has, God has done more in six years than we thought would happen in six decades. We've grown numerically, we've grown spiritually, we've grown organizationally, and where we started is not where we are today. Where we are today is not how we started. And really, I, I tell you this all the time because I don't want us to forget the story, okay? That there was 30 of us who moved our lives from the Raleigh-Durham area. And we didn't move to Winston-Salem because Winston-Salem's a cooler city than Durham, okay? We love Winston. We had our own international airport. We had DPAC. We had Duke. We didn't move to Winston because Winston was a cooler city. We moved to Winston because we loved the city of Winston and we wanted to reach it with the gospel. And when 30 of us moved here, we met, there was 70 of you who met us here. Now you weren't just standing in the parking lot. That would have been awesome, okay? But you, we, you joined our launch team. So guys, I just want you to know that we had 100 people who said, we're gonna be all in with our time, talent, treasure. And that is what launched our church six years ago. So if you were on that original launch team, okay, that original launch team that moved with us or met us here, please stand right now proudly. Stand. There's not that many of you left. Yes, all three of you. Thank you. Oh, there, there, there you go. Six, six people in here. Thank you guys. God bless you guys. Okay. And then we were in Goler, okay? And we were in Goler for two years and we grew to 600 people at two evening services in a building that's now been sold, okay? It was just kind of a crazy time in the life of our church. And, uh, and, and you guys who were at Goler, you gave and you're why we were able to get into this building. If you were with us at Goler, please stand proudly now. All right. All right, you can be seated. I know the, the rest of you go, come on, I drove by Goler one time. Does that count? No. Some of you are like, I get it. We've been in this building for four years now, but here's what's really neat. If you're, right, if you're in this building right now and you are not with us at Goldard, you are not on our launch team, here's what's a cool thought for you to have. You are sitting in the sacrifice of other people. Someone else prayed, someone else invited, someone else gave, someone else was an early adopter. But here's what's so exciting. When you see that facility, what we're building, it's gonna be done in, we hope, about a year. We think about all the people who are gonna come and they're gonna meet Jesus, they're gonna be made into his disciples, and they are going to sit in your sacrifice. And so I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for giving, for serving, for praying, for inviting, for believing. Uh, I just wanna also say this. I, I would feel remiss on our sixth anniversary not to say this. If you are still on the sidelines, if you are still being a spectator, if you're, still, if you're looking for a sign to get in, here it is right now, this is the sign. For you guys to get on in because we have, I said it in the video, I'll say it one more time. This is a significant geographical and generational move that we're making as a church. We are cementing ourselves in the center of downtown for a century to do meaningful gospel ministry. And we just wanna invite you and your family. So we had close to about 100 people come through our weekender uh, this weekend, you'll hear about that at the end. We've got another weekender, October 21st and 22nd. Be a great way to connect you and your family to God's global purposes through our local church. So I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna thank God. I'm actually gonna read a verse. So when, uh, when I left the summit, they gave me this little preaching booklet and on this little preaching booklet is a verse. It says Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And let me just read that and we'll pray on our uh, anniversary here. It says this. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we lift up to you the last six years and we just commit that our dreams are always going to be bigger than our memories. We just commit that Though we are unbelievably grateful for the past, we are 
unbelievably focused on the future. And because of the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, because of the promises of God, we always believe the future is bigger and brighter than the past. And we are so eager and excited to see what you're going to do in and through and beyond us in the years to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, type two, turn two, Mark six. We are in week seven of a 20-week series in the gospel of Mark. If you've not been around, you gotta catch up online, listen to the past sermons. Uh, But let me just tell you this, we are in a fast-paced, action-packed, little gospel. It's little compared to the other three gospels called Mark, okay? And what we're doing is we're just following Jesus through the gospel of Mark, and and he's going from one place to another. And last week, we saw Jesus send out the first disciples, his 12 disciples, on their first ever short-term mission trip, but we never heard back how it went. I don't know if you noticed that. Mark does this every once in a while. It's called sandwich storytelling. He starts a story. He gets excited. He tells another story. Some of you are like this, right? (laughs) And and then he comes back, and he finishes the story, okay? And so what we're doing, if you'll pick up with me in verse 30, we're going to see the disciples come back. We don't know how long they were gone. A while. They traveled to to go places and preach and teach. They come back, and look what it says in verse 30. Here's what it says. Um, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Now, this is the first time they're ever called apostles. Up until now, they've been called disciples. Okay, now they get to graduate, right? They went, they do the first short-term mission trip. They, they walk with authority and clarity and simplicity, and they come back, and they get to be called apostles. Now, let me just one minute on this. Uh, there's a difference between what theologians call big A apostles, okay, and little A apostles. These are big A apostles. Big A apostles are unique, right? There was 12 of them. They walked with Jesus. They saw him face-to-face. They wrote scripture. They had a unique role and responsibility and redemptive history, okay? And they're big A apostles, but guess all apostle literally means, because we're all to be little A apostles, little A apostle just means I'm, it means a sent one. It means someone who's sent out with the authority of another person. And so in one sense, we're all to be apostles and to live sent where we live, learn, work, and play. Uh, but here's what I want us to see. This is, we're gonna spend the rest of the day or the rest of the morning in, uh, in the rest of Mark 6. And we're going to see, here's the big idea. Some of you take notes, the big idea for today is that Jesus gives us provision and protection, okay? That's it. We're gonna look at the great miracle of the providing of the loaves and the fish. We're gonna look at the great protection miracle of Jesus calming the storm and protecting the disciples in the storm. But it's gonna start with another way that Jesus provides for us and protects us, and it's that he gives us rest. I want you to see this. This is really interesting. Look at verse 31 with me. Here's what it says. And he, this is Jesus, said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had, no, they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Um, so this is interesting. They just have a season of ministry. We don't know exactly how long, but they've been following Jesus for a while. They just did their first short-term mission trip. Uh, here's what we do know. They have, uh, they've experienced both the success of ministry, which is very, very exhilarating. They see people baptized, they see people come to Christ, they see disciples made, they see demons cast out, they see people healed. But also we know, and we saw this with John the Baptist last week, the hostility and the opposition are increasing, right? This is what often happens, by the way. When you're having a dynamic ministry, uh, both the persecution that you experience and the converts that you experience, they grow at the same level. Both the opposition and the opportunities come at usually about the same level. And so here's what I want us to see. Jesus initiates for the disciples to rest. And you might go, come on, Jesus, this is the height of your ministry. You're super popular. There's a lot more people that need to get saved. There's a lot of more disciples that need to be made. There's a lot more people that need to be cared for. And here's, here's what I want us to see. Jesus initiates rest. Now, so here's my question for you. What is your plan for rest? 
I mean, you don't need to say it out loud, but do you have a plan to rest? Let me tell you why rest is so important. Because Jesus doesn't want you to burn out or to blow up. Have you known people that done those? I think we've, we both know those stories, right? Burnout is normally a little bit more quiet. Burnout normally is I'm doing too many things for too long, sometimes with the wrong perspective, but often just with no rest. You ever just served in the kids' ministry again and again and again and again and you didn't take a break? You didn't take the right time off? Do you ever lead a community group or you host a community group in your house for five or six years in a row? Do you ever, I'm not picking on small churches, you ever just been a part of a small church and it's like you're serving every week and you're doing setup and teardown? It's like it's possible to burn out if you don't have the right rest. Now, you don't hear that as much because people who burn out, they're usually very nice. They usually leave really quietly and they usually lie to you about why they're leaving. What happens more often is blowing up. What is blowing up? This is important to know because you may want to know how do people blow up? Because you hear about it, then you read about it, you go, oh my gosh. How did he? How did she? How could they? Well, we know how this happens. The way that you blow up is you begin to find rest in the wrong places. It doesn't start out really that, you know, it starts out a little bit this, a little bit that, all of a sudden you're the person who drinks way too much. It started out one night, you looked at a website, now you're going to a website every night. It starts out, you know, you started texting the wrong person and now you have this unhealthy relationship. And what happened is, a lot of things, but one of the things that happened is you're like, I need to find some rest. So part of learning how to rest is you need to find healthy escapes. If you don't find healthy escapes, you're going to wake up and you're going to be like 45 years old and you're gonna be like, why do I have these three to five unbelievably terrible habits? And what they were is how you coped with the busyness of your life. And so Jesus says, you gotta rest. Now, here's the assumption, right? We always say there's two sides of things. This assumes you're working hard. You're working hard at parenting. You're working hard at being a spouse. You're working hard at your job. You're actually trying to have a ministry. You're trying to be missional in your living, okay? Now, this is interesting because there was an article that came out last week in Fortune Magazine about millennials, you know? And I always pick on millennials, and I am a millennial. I'm actually what's considered a geriatric millennial, okay? You're welcome. Because um, millennials turned 40 this year. So millennials are like between 40 and 25 or something like that. And this article is really interesting. Uh, in Fortune Magazine, it basically said millennials want the soft life. And I thought, what is that? And so I read about this. And basically, the soft life, they said, they said the American dream has changed. And I think we've all felt this. Parents have felt this about their kids. Grandparents have felt this about their kids. What's, what's going on with my kid? Why won't he or she get a real job? Some of you are like, yes, I'm listening. <laughs> um, you know, why, why won't they get married? Why won't they have kids? Why won't they grow up? Why are they getting their fourth degree in, like, you know, Russian history? And, and, and the reason is, the old American dream was, I will work unbelievably hard, and I will save money and make money, and my goal is to live in the suburbs and have a nice house and have a few kids. And they said the, the, the soft life dream of millennials is, is to basically work as little as possible and to have as many experiences as possible. And some of you understand that. You're like, that's why he does that. It's so that he and his friends can go travel all the time. That's why he took that job. And so the assumption with rest is you're working hard. This is why the fourth commandment says six days you shall work in, one day you shall rest. Now, as Americans, we got two days, right? We got a two-day weekend. You ever wonder how that happened? You're like, how did, how did we get Saturday and Sunday? Because when our nation was founded, they couldn't decide whether to give us the Jewish day off or the Christian day off, so they gave us both. Thank you, Moses. Thank you, Jesus, right? <laughs> We're grateful for that. But so what I want to talk to you is, is I want us to see the principle of Jesus tells us to rest. Now, 
just let me be real practical because what we want to be here is if you're new, we want to be ruthlessly biblical, look at the text, and then highly practical in your life. Uh, you need to figure out how you're going to rest daily, how you're going to rest weekly, and how you're going to rest yearly, okay? Some might add quarterly, but I would say at least those three. Now, you know you need to rest daily, right? I mean, that's what sleep is. Have you ever tried to like not sleep, right? Some of you are like, I'm not gonna sleep. I'm gonna go to bed late and I'm gonna wake up early. Then your eye starts to twitch and everyone thinks you're flirting with them, right? You ever had that situation? Yeah, me either. Okay, good. Um, no, but you try to, you need to sleep. Now, most of us think what sleep does is sleep is like what I do so I'm not tired. That's probably what you think. Oh, sleep is what I do so I'm not tired. It's like, well, if you actually read about what sleep does, it's like balances your hormones, organizes your memories, burns fat, you know, it's just, it just, it does so many things for you. Now, Jesus created you. This is, this is part of the work and rest are built into the fabric of creation. And you at least know on a daily basis, you can't break it or it'll break you. And so you're gonna have to figure out how do you rest daily? Most people like John Stott, he's a, he was a pastor for years. Um, his, his advice was an hour a day, a day a week, a week a year, you need to figure out how to rest. Bare minimum. Um, so you're gonna have to figure out what is restful to you, so again, so you don't have unhealthy places of rest, so that you can have healthy places of rest. By the way, the spiritual disciplines, Bible reading, prayer, journaling, memorization, meditation, um, they're supposed to be restful. If they're not restful, you're doing them wrong. And you just need to repent. Say, oh, I'm so sorry. I turned this into a to-do list. My, my Bible reading is supposed to be a time of rest for me. So you need to figure out how to rest weekly. You need to figure out how to rest, or sorry, uh, daily. You need to figure out how to rest weekly, right? Jesus built that into creation as well. Uh, we see that God rests. I've, I've given whole sermons on the Sabbath. Let me just say this real quickly. You need to figure out how to rest weekly. And here's the principle. When you break God's law, it breaks you. And so some people go, I don't need to rest. I'll just keep working. And here, let me tell you what happens, because you've seen this. Maybe this happened to you. If you don't take a voluntary Sabbath, you'll take an involuntary Sabbath. You ever meet those people? Where's Jim? Jim's in the hospital. Jim's in the hospital. Oh yeah, he blew out his adrenal glands. Oh, he's, so, he's, he's so stressed out of his mind. He hasn't been able to sleep. Like, oh, Jim didn't take a, I'm not saying this is why everyone's in the hospital, but I'm saying Jim didn't take a voluntary Sabbath. So then you take an involuntary Sabbath, which I wouldn't recommend because they're a lot more painful and they last a lot longer. And then you need to figure out how to do something yearly, right? Some of you have been looking for a verse on vacation. Here it is. But there are principles in the Old Testament. There are festivals, there are feasts, there are, time, there are times of renewal and relaxation. And basically you just, you need longer seasons to get away, okay? Uh, I think a helpful principle is you need to know when is your next break. You need to know that. You and your spouse need to know when is our next break. Our family needs to know we're going hard, but when is our next break? Yes, we're gonna rest daily. Yes, we're gonna rest weekly. But when do we get away to enjoy one another, to enjoy what God has given us? Now, Jesus gives two principles to rest. I want you to see this. Uh, look at me again at verse... I believe it's verse 31. Here's what he says. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place. So look at the principle of place and rest for a while. And he says, come away by yourselves. In other words, he says, come, come away as a group and rest in a quiet place. Uh, I don't have a lot of time on this, but just to ask you, these are really simple questions, but they would be worth talking about as a community group. They'd be worth journaling about. They'd be worth having a conversation over dinner. What are the places and who are the people that are restful? Let me ask you a real practical question. Is there any part of your house that's restful? I, I don't do a lot of marriage counseling. You don't want me doing your marriage counseling usually, okay? Okay, and, and I only have like five or six plays in my playbook when it comes to marriage counseling. But one of them is how, what does your master bedroom look like? Is your master bedroom at all a place of rest? It's like, oh no, we don't have a lock on the door. I'm like, wrong answer. You know, 
Oh yeah, the kids sleep with us every night. They crawl on, no, wrong answer. Let's wear all the dirty laundry and we work out of there, wrong answer. You need to have a place. And for most couples, it needs to be the master bedroom. This is a place of rest. This is a place of re retreats. This is a place of relaxation. Do you have any places? Is it Lake Norman? Is it, is it Boone? Is it Tanglewood? Is it Salem Lake? I mean, where do you go to get refueled and rest? Is it your back deck? Is, is, it a, is it a chair in the house? I mean, you need places. You go, okay, that's places. And then here's the other principle. You need people. Let me tell you who those people are not. Your in-laws, <laughs> right? I'm saving you a, a, a little bit of marriage counseling. Okay, here it is. Because this is what happens. I mean, there are some exceptions to this, okay? And I love my in-laws and my wife loves my parents and all that. But, but what, we, what every couple normally has happen about year three or four, especially once you start having kids, you look at each other and you just, one of you has to say it. It's normally just the more extroverted or you know, assertive person just says, hey, I gotta be honest, honey. It is not restful when we go away with your family. Right? You ever come back from a vacation with the in-laws? You're like, I need a vacation from my vacation. Because it just wasn't a restful time. Now, okay, so that doesn't mean you don't vacation with your in-laws. It's like, you've got to find out. Now, this is very, very hard. If you can find one or two couples or families to whom you say they are life-giving, right? Because here's what normally happens. The wives try to set the husbands up together. Jim, Bob, meet each other. You both like baseball. It's like, uh, <laughs> right? You need to find couples. It's like he likes him and she likes her and, and the kids are about the same age and they play together without us being worried the whole time, right? So, okay, so, so here's the principle. People, places, daily, weekly, yearly, so that you don't burn out, so that you don't blow up, done. But here's what happens, and this is the tension I want us to see. Look what happens in verse 33. Now, many saw them going. What did they see them going? They saw them get in a boat and go away and to a desolate place. It says this. And they recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and they got there ahead of them. Here's what we're gonna see in a minute. Jesus doesn't get to rest, though he planned to rest. Here's the tension. I mean, I don't have an answer. I thought about this all week and we'll just talk about it together and the tension of it. When do you know it's time for me to rest? And when do you know I need to not rest right now because I need to help another person? You ever felt that? It's like, Saturday's my day off this week. And your friend comes, calls and says, I'm moving. You're like, no. Can you grab the other end of the couch? You know, it's like, not how I was planning on spending my Saturday. And so I think what you have to do is, we see Jesus, he's able to be interruptible. He really cares for rest. He actually is gonna initiate rest. At the same time, he's very interruptible. I think the only way for you to know this is you have to, you have to talk to your spouse about this. You have to be in community and you have to see, am I more prone, am I more prone to overserve people and not take care of myself? Let me tell you, that normally happens with people, and I know none of you wanna think you're this, but that happens with people who are insecure. People who are insecure, people who really wanna be liked, people who have lower self-esteem, which is okay, that's some of you. People who, um, they're people-pleasing, they struggle with peer pressure, they struggle with codependency, they struggle with saying the word no. Th those are the people who, yeah, I'll, I'll lift the other end of the couch, and they don't really want to. And they know they need a break, but they don't know how to tell people no. There's other people who it's just, you've got to get over, you're, you're a little bit more selfish. And you think, here's what you wish, and I wish this happened too. Don't you wish that everything that would ever go wrong in somebody's life would happen Monday through Friday, eight to five? Partly because you could go, I'm busy, <laughs> sorry, I'm already working. It's like, sorry, marriages don't fall apart between eight and five. Kids don't rebel in, in between eight and five. People don't get bad news about their health only between eight and five. 
And so this is the tension. Jesus is interruptible. Now look what he does here. I want you to see what it says. If you look at it, it says verse 34. Here's what it says here. When he, that's Jesus, went ashore, he saw, so that's always a key thing with Jesus seeing, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So the reason that Jesus was willing to serve was because he saw people spiritually and he saw people at the soul level. Now, does it, you see that? It says he looked out, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, as people who needed to be taken care of. We tend to look out and we tend to see people, let's just be honest, superficially and surface level. I mean, of course. I can see the logo on your shirt and I can see the car you pulled in on and I can see the job that you have as soon as you tell me it and I can kind of see your family looks like it's all together. By the way, what I've seen in 15, 20 years of ministry is the people whose lives seem most together on the outside are usually, as a general rule, falling apart on the inside. And I'm not sure that's like happened again and again and again. And I'm not, I'm not always sure why. I think it has something to do with what it maybe costs a person to have what they have and oh, the other things that maybe they've had to sacrifice to get there. But you'll meet these families and immediately that you'll be really, really impressed. You do what? You live where? And everybody in your family looks attractive? And then they just open up to you. And somebody in there is breaking their heart or their life is falling apart or they've had the wrong priorities for a decade. So Jesus is able to see people spiritually. We tend to see people selfishly. What can you do for me, right? Could you connect me to somebody? Could you get me a better job? Could you open some doors? Do you have resources and relationships that I need? Jesus always sees people not so much what can they do for him, but what can he do for them? So look what it says in verse 34. It says he had compassion, okay? This is a word only used of Jesus. It's used nine times in the Gospels to just talk about Jesus. Compassion literally means to be moved in your bowels. Now today, to be moved in your bowels means something a little differently, okay? Some of you go, I don't ever want to be moved in my bowels again, okay? <laughs> but here's, let me talk about this for a second. So why would they, so back then, they thought of the center of a person as right here. We, what do you think is the center of you? You think of the center of you is up here probably. Some of you who are more feelers probably think this is the center of you. Well, they thought the bowels was the center of them. And you may go, well, why would people think that? Were they not very smart? Here's why they thought that. Because we don't even know this, but until about two or 300 years ago, people were always scared because there were so many terrible things and we are so unbelievably protected, we don't even understand it. And people were almost always hungry. Right now, today, obesity is a bigger problem than starvation in our world. But how would you feel if you were always scared and you were always hungry? Where would, you, where would all your feelings come from? It would come from right here. So Jesus, it says, he feels compassion for the people. So notice what he does. We're gonna see how many he's gonna feed them. But what does he do before he feeds them? He teaches them. This is so encouraging to me. In fact, he's going to teach them for so long, it's going to get late and they're gonna miss a meal. This is a great verse for long teaching of the Bible. <laughs> yes. And so what happens is, well, here's the thing. When we talk about this, I don't want us to forget this, that the main problem with man and women, uh, men and women, uh, according to the Bible, is ignorance. That is the greatest problem. There are other problems that seem more obvious to us. This person's hungry. This person's anxious. This person's bitter. It's like, no, no, no. Yes, all that's true. Here's the greatest problem. They're ignorant. They don't, it's, it's what they don't know. It's either what you don't know or what you won't know. <laughs> that's hard. 
So if you're not in church, this might be what you don't know. If, it's, if you're in church and you heard good Bible preaching, it's what you won't know. It's what you'll be willfully blind to. It's what you'll suppress, Romans 1 says. So Jesus, he has compassion, and then he teaches them. But I want you to see what happens next. This is really interesting. Look at verse 35. And when it grew late, so he'd been teaching for a long time, his disciples came to him and they said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Because remember, they went on a boat and other people came and so they're like far away, okay? It says this, 36, send them away. Look at the disciples. Send these people away, send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. So there's a need that needs to be met. And they're like, let's send these people away to go meet this need by themselves. And Jesus, will see this in a minute, he's gonna say, hey, why don't you give them something to eat? And he's gonna help them give them something to eat. Here, here's the principle, I think. How often do we send people other places to have their needs met instead of sending them to Jesus? Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, there's lots of examples of that. Like we, we, we go to every, Jesus wants to meet a need and we go somewhere else. We go to Google instead of God, that would be a little example. But you know, we, we send people, I mean, this is why I'm just not a huge fan of counseling that is not explicitly Christian. Um, just, you know, because I'm sure there might be a place for it. But in my general, you know, experience, when I'm talking to some couple and they're eventually coming here and they're like, uh, we were, we've been in counseling for two years and they, they think we should get divorced. Like, where are you going to, and it, you, inevitably it's not Christian counseling. And so it's like, we need to, here, here's a big one. And hear me out, I'll walk on this tightrope, you know, carefully with all of us and try to be careful how I talk about this. But uh, how often do people go to medication immediately instead of going to Jesus. We're not saying there's no place to take a pill. If my kids get sick, pill and prayer. We believe in both. Here's a pill, we're praying, okay? We're not against pills, okay? But how often do we, we are just, I mean, you have to, hopefully you know this. We are an over-medicated society. Oh, you feel guilty? Oh, you're depressed? Oh, you're anxious? There's a pill for that. It's like, well, maybe, because there are certain things that are biological and we're not against pills, let me say it again. But what about, how about this, try this on. You're guilty? You feel guilty? You feel depressed? Maybe you're guilty. Maybe I don't wanna give you a pill that's gonna, gonna make you a shadow of who you are and disintegrate your personality and make you not know what's going on. Maybe I wanna talk to you about guilt. This is why, before I would, and I don't, obviously I'm not a doctor, I'm a, not a psychologist, I don't prescribe medication. But before anyone's gonna, if someone said to me, you know, are you gonna, should I take some medication for this? I, the first thing I would say is, well, before that, let me ask you this question. Is there anything that you'd like to tell me? Is there anything that you need to confess? Well, no one wants to ask those questions. Is there anything in your life that would need to change? And so we need to be very careful that we don't send people other places for needs that Jesus says he wants to meet. Look how he meets it here. Look at, look at this. Verse 37. And he answered, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii? That was half a day's wage. Or sorry, half a year's wage. Should, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Now, look at this. We know from a different gospel. Mark doesn't tell us this. Another gospel tells us. Guess who speaks up? Philip, right? And what is Philip's first thing? That Jesus says, hey, I would like to do something great through you. I would like to do a great work. I would like to do a great miracle. I'd like to meet a lot of people's needs. And guess what the first thing the disciples say, or Philip especially, it's too expensive. Philip would make a great deacon on a financial committee. How many works of God have been hindered 
or never got off the ground because people were overly and only concerned about finances. We're not saying finances aren't important. We're not saying just take out a bunch of debt. We're not just saying spend money and don't think about it. But how many buildings were never built? How many ministries were never launched? How many churches were never planted? How many missionaries were never sent? Because somebody just said, this is gonna be too expensive. I love what Bill Bright did. Bill Bright, he's one of my heroes. He started Campus Crusade for Christ, which is now Crew. And uh, he, you're talking about a serious dude. Read about him sometime. He did a 40-day fast, water only, all his life, all his adult life. It's like, you don't know anybody who does that because you have to be so unbelievably serious to do that. And what he would do is he would always gather his leadership team every year and they'd go away for a retreat and he would say, hey guys, they had a worldwide ministry. He said, guys, we're not talking about money till the end. I want us to dream. Let's dream some God dreams. I want us to have some vision. Where do we want to go and what do we want to do? And at the very end, they'd figure out how to fund it because they believe that provision follows vision. So Jesus says, give them something to eat. Now look here, verse 38. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they had found out, they said, five and two fish. This is amazing. Okay, so Jesus' first question to them is, what do you have? Let me ask you that. What do you have? Here's the, here's the humbling thing. The disciples didn't even know what they had. How can you give something to Jesus that you don't know you have? You can't. And so we talk here a lot about stewardship, right? I talk about stewardship. Stewardship is one of the main biblical themes in all of scripture. And it's all that I think I own is really from God on loan. That's stewardship, okay? And, um, but the principle that I probably haven't taught, the principle under stewardship, because stewardship is management, right? Stewardship is... A component of stewardship is generosity. A component of stewardship is leveraging, okay? But there's a principle underneath all of that, and it's this. You can't steward what you don't know you have. So the foundation of stewardship is I need to realize what God has given me. So, I mean, don't answer out loud, but what God has given you? What has God given you? How much money you got? What's your salary? It's like, okay, God, I can't use this if I don't know what it is. How much time you got? The average American has four hours and 57 minutes a day of discretionary time, not including weekends. It's a lot of time. Makes sense. You got an hour or two in the morning. You got maybe an hour for lunch. You got an hour or two or three at night. How about, you know, what do you got? Do you know your spiritual gifts? Most people don't. How can you give Jesus your spiritual gifts and say, use them if you don't know what gifts they are? How about your stage of life? If you're young and you're single, you're like, well, wow, I've got energy and strength, and vigor, vigor, and I'd like to give it to God. So here's the principle. They're very simple right out of the story. I have to know what I have, and then I have to give it to God and ask him to multiply it. That's it. It's like, I, whatever God's given me, I say, Lord, thank you, right? And it might be little. I have seen people, godly people. It's like, I have this little apartment. I barely can afford it, and it's little, and it's a one-bedroom, and it's, but you know what? I could host a community group or we could have some families over, or it's our first year of marriage and we can dedicate this little small space to the Lord and ask him to establish a home in this little space he's given us. You can do that. I want you to know, I think I'd be remiss not to say this on our sixth anniversary, that the story of Two Cities Church has been our church giving Jesus five loaves and two fishes and saying, can you do something with this? Right? When we started this church, there was five of us, me and my wife and our three kids. And three, the three kids were young and they weren't believers. So we started this church with two Christians and three non-Christians. <laughs> right? And I had never been a senior pastor in my whole life. I just thought, I like the Bible and I like to talk a lot. Let's see if this works. 
okay? And we, I, love our, I love our launch team, okay? But they were 100 people, and they were just a ragtag group that said, we'll be early adopters. And then we took a building downtown that's now been sold, and we went to night services when everybody was canceling their night services. And we moved on North, Northwest Boulevard, and if you saw these buildings before, to look at these buildings, you needed to get a tetanus shot, Okay? And we just said, Lord, we're just going to take these, these five loaves and these two fish, and we're just going to ask you to multiply them. That's what God's done. Now, look what happens here. They multiply. Look what it says in verse 39. And he, that's Jesus, commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass, and they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were satisfied in verse 43 and 44. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces uh, of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So it's, now they didn't count like pastors do. These were really 5,000 people, okay? They weren't counting pregnant women twice. They weren't counting the band every service, okay? This, and actually it was more than 5,000 because what they were doing is they, this was not including women and children. People think this was 15 to 20,000 people. Now, here's what I want us to notice. There's a couple of principles here. One, Jesus doesn't give out, you can read it in all the accounts, Jesus doesn't give out any bread, he doesn't give out any fish. Jesus gives it to the disciples and the disciples give it to the people. So from the people's perspective, it looks like the disciples are meeting their needs, but really it's Jesus meeting their needs. And welcome to all of ministry. All of ministry is I go to Jesus, he gives me something. He gives me grace, he gives me knowledge, and, and then I go and I give that to another person. He gives me money. And I go and I give that to another person and they think it's me. And I need to remind myself and I need to remind them this is actually Jesus meeting your need. And, and here's what else is interesting. You may wanna ask yourself this, did the 15,000 people know that this was a miracle? I don't think so. You ever been around 15,000 people? It's like, that's a lot of people. It's gonna be hard. There's no microphones. There's no way to communicate all this stuff. How would they know that there was no, no fish and no bread? The only people who saw the miracle and knew it was a miracle was the disciples. This was to teach them a lesson. This was to teach them about how Jesus Christ provides for us. And do you see how everybody, it looks at the very end, it says that uh, there was 12 baskets left over. Literally in the Greek, that's more like the word backpack. Each disciple got their own spiritual souvenir backpack with fish that had never swam, okay? And they get bread in there. And, and here's, I think, the principle here. You see, one, you see the provision of what they call the provision of providence. Jesus gives us everything that we need, but just enough. And you also see this, that Jesus often meets your needs by you meeting other people's needs. Jesus often meets your needs as you meet other people's needs. Have you ever seen this? All of a sudden, you, you, know, you say, I'm gonna hold this person accountable. You're, and you're really meeting their need, but guess what? You ever hold someone accountable? It's like, you better get your life together. You ever said, let's go read the Bible together? Then you wake up and you go, I actually don't read my Bible very much. You ever disciple somebody and you go, well, I better get my life together. You ever do some marriage counseling and you go, well, I better work on my marriage. Often what happens is as you minister to other people, it is the very thing that God uses to grow you. So here ends that miracle. It's a picture of Jesus' provision, right? He provides rest, he provides food, he provides spiritual food by teaching. And then here's the famous miracle of walking on water. If you look at me at verse 45, it says this, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. I mean, they are, they are leveraging that boat for all they can do, right? <laughs> Jesus is sleeping on that boat. They are traveling on that boat. They are teaching from that boat. Here it is. 
And, imme- and immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Great. So often Jesus would get away and pray. 47. And when it came evening, the boat was out at sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So this is the second storm in the book of Mark. We kind of skipped over and skimmed over and summarized the storm in Mark 4 really quickly. But this is the second time a storm comes. Now, storms in the Bible, if you don't know this, are really big deals. So Genesis 6 through 8 or 9 is the story of Noah and the flood. I mean, that's just one big storm for 40 days. Uh, the plagues, what was the plagues about? Well, it's just one big storm, well, multiple storms. And here's what a storm is a reminder of. A storm is a reminder that you're not in control, right? We live under the, we live in an unbelievable time to be alive, uh, but we are, we are just so, we live in the illusion of control, right? So it can be 25 degrees out and you can go to bed and you can set your thermostat at 72 degrees. I mean, it's really unbelievable how you know, you can get your food and you can put it in your fridge and you can decide, do you want it 36 degrees? Do you want to put it in the freezer? We are just, in, you, most of you feel very in control of your schedules. Well, the one thing in life, even in 2022, that reminds us we're not in control is what? Storms. I know we can kind of thank, thank the Lord for meteorology and weather and all that. We can kind of predict a storm. But there's, I mean, go talk to somebody who lives at the beach. It doesn't matter what are you going to do if, you, if a hurricane comes? It just reminds you you're not in control. Go talk to someone in Oklahoma when it's tornado season. It's just like there is nothing. Storms are a reminder that we're finite. We don't like storms. It reminds us that we're finite, that we're fragile, that we're vulnerable. Right? And a storm is, there's, here's, the, here's this, the reality that I need to say it out loud. There's nothing that you and I can do. And I hate this, but it's just the truth. There's nothing you and I can do to protect ourselves from a storm never coming to us. Right? I mean, do you think that you can make enough money? Is there a house? Is there a neighborhood you could live in where a storm wouldn't come? Is there people that you could know where a storm wouldn't come? It's like, well, how about Steve Jobs? Wealthy, networked, creative, powerful, pancreatic cancer. And sometimes storms come, you need to be ready because sometimes you can hear the wind and you can see the waves and you go, a storm's coming. Other times it's just like you found out something about your spouse or your kid that you didn't want to know. Storm. You're like, I'm not where I was. Everything changed. You get a phone call. You go to the doctor. So storms are coming. So here's, here's the principle. <laughs> this, is, this is the deepest thing I'm probably going to say this morning. And I don't have time to explain all of this, but here's what we know about a storm. Jesus sent them into the storm. I know it brings up all kinds of questions. It should. But there's only two options. Jesus sent them into the storm and didn't know there was going to be a storm. He sent them in the boat, didn't know there was going to be a storm. Or he sent them and knew there was going to be a storm. I want to choose option B, okay? And by the way, there's actually a great comfort, right? If you're in some storm and Jesus didn't know you were going to be in it, how's he going to get you out of it? Now, look, there's... When we talk about this, we have to use soft language like God allows and God permits. That's the right language to use. But there are storms in your life, right? And there are, there's two types of storms. There's correcting storms and there's perfecting storms. Correcting storms are what we were just praying about a few weeks ago for people who we love, who are far from God and close to us. 
Uh, correcting storms are, I got myself into this mess, and God is using this storm to discipline and redirect my life. And those are the worst storms, because you kind of stand there and you kind of go, when it's just you by yourself and you wake up at three in the morning, you're like, I did this. I got myself into this. I broke the trust. But then there are perfecting storms, right? Perfecting storms are, God's just using this in my life, right? By the way, this is why the Bible says you want to have a clear conscience. Why? So when a storm comes, you can go, my conscience is clear. I have been trying to live above reproach. I have been confessing my sin. I have not been hiding things. This is not a correcting storm. This is a perfecting storm. This is why Paul talks all the time about having a clear conscience. But if you meet people who've been through storms, and you will meet people, and you will go through storms, you find if a person goes through storms, they, their, their hold on the world is not as tight. Their longing for heaven is deeper. And so what I want us to see really quickly is that Jesus sees you in the storm after he sent you into the storm. And Jesus actually not only sees you in the storm, he comes to you in the storm, and he speaks to you in the storm. Look here. It says, in about the fourth watch of the night, that would be between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., by the way, they've been in the storm for a while. Sometimes that you're going to feel that way. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astonished, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So there comes Jesus surfing on the sea. Okay, Jesus is water skiing without skis, okay, right right onto it. And what's interesting is I've always heard, whenever you hear about Jesus walking on water, if you ever look at pictures, like if you Google Jesus walking on water, it's always like a calm day, and Jesus' hair is like blowing, and he's like walking on like peaceful water. But actually, if you read the story, he's not just walking on water, he's walking in a storm. And it's like, well, what, think about this for a second. What were they so afraid of? When you're in a boat, if there's a storm, what are you most afraid of? The water. The waves. The effect that the water and the waves can have. And what does Jesus do? He's walking on the very thing that seems so terrifying. Often Jesus comes to you in your suffering on the very thing you fear. I, I, I was, I'm going through cancer and Jesus is using this. Jesus came to me uniquely in my cancer. Jesus came to me uniquely in the most difficult time in my marriage. The Bible says Jesus comes and he speaks to you because here's the temptation. When you're going through a storm, the temptation is to feel like nobody knows, nobody cares. Jesus can't do anything. Jesus doesn't see me. You know, I was talking to a couple recently. They're an older couple in our church and their daughter, their adult daughter is breaking their heart. This is a common story. And they pulled me aside a couple weeks ago and they said, they, can we meet with you and we need to talk about it? And then they said this to me. They said, Kyle, and they told me what she's going through. They said, we have not been able to tell another person for three months. You ever been that? Something happened to you, and it's just like so terrible. You're, you, you, when you talk about it, you cry, so you can't tell anybody about it. They said, Kyle, we haven't been able to tell another human for three months that this is going on. It's like, well, okay, look, Jesus sees. What Jesus does is he comes, he gets in the boat, and, the, and it calms down. But here's what it says. It kind of leaves us just a little bit on a discouraging note. The disciples' hearts was hardened. were hardened. Do you see that? It says because they didn't understand the loaves. What didn't they understand about the loaves? We don't know all the answers. Is it possible that they already forgot? That happens to us a lot. 
We, we, already, we forget that God's past grace in our life is a promise of God's future grace in our lives. And so what happens at the very end is their hearts get hardened. Maybe some think because they saw Jesus meet other people's needs, the 15,000, but they maybe didn't think Jesus was going to meet their needs. And so as we summarize what we just talked about, this whole end of chapter 6 is about Jesus giving us provision and protection. So let me just ask you a few questions as we close. Number one, where do you need to rest? You need to have a marathon mindset. You need to figure out how to rest in healthy ways so that you don't burn out and you don't blow up. We want you to be a joyful 75-year-old man or woman loving the Lord and finishing well, and that starts by learning how to rest well. Secondly, I want you to think about what has God given you? What is the time he's given you? What are the talents he's given you? What is the treasure that he's given you? And then I want you to think, some of you guys, you guys might be in a storm right now, right? And I want to warn you, some of you may be heading into a storm, a correcting storm, right? And you can kind of see it. You can hear the wind, you can see the waves, and you are making decisions, and you are heading in a direction that's going to lead you right into the eye of the storm. But here's what Jesus has given us. Jesus, so in John 6, Jesus does the, the loaves and the fishes. And then in John 6, Jesus, after he does that, he teaches that he is the bread of life. And so actually, how we want to end tonight is we want to take communion together. Or not tonight, this morning. We want to take communion together. Now, I want to talk to you about communion for just a moment. Because communion is the way that God, it's one of the ways God has designed for your heart not to get hardened. So remember it said, you can be a Christian, you can be a disciple, and your heart can still be hard. That's what happened with the disciples. Now, I want to tell you something about communion, because I've been... I guess, on church staff now for here or other places for about 12 years. And I always fear communion, always. And I always know when it's coming, but I'm always afraid of it because I know how serious it is. And so here's what I want to tell you. As we take communion, communion is not something to be taken lightly. It's both serious and it's celebratory. But the Bible says do not eat communion in an unworthy manner. So I want to just talk to us. Just I want to give you a moment. We're going to pray before we do it. It's like, listen, if you have bitterness and forgiveness in your heart towards somebody, I'm going to ask you to do one of two things. I'm going to ask you to not take communion. If you have bitterness towards somebody, you have unforgiveness in someone's heart, I'm going to ask you just to stay seated and you pray about that. Or when I pray, I want you to release that. You may just need, sometimes what I'll do this when I pray, I go like this. It's just like a symbolic, Lord, I give this to you. If you have, if you need to be reconciled to somebody, and you haven't been, I'm going to ask you to not take communion. Or I'm going to ask you to commit immediately that you're going to call this person, you're going to text this person, you're going to reconcile with them today, and you take communion. If you are in a place right now and you're just like, you know what, I'm in love with some sin, and I'm not going to give it up, then I'm going to ask you to please not take communion. But if when I pray, you say, Lord, I did it again this week, and I'm really sorry, and I, I don't want my heart to be hardened, and I'm going to come forward, and I'm going to take communion, then I invite you to take communion. Communion is the family meal of the church. In fact, what they used to do is they used to sit around tables, and they would talk about what God did in their life, and they would share bread and wine together, and they would celebrate the broken body and, and shed blood of Christ. And so that's what we're going to do. And this is for Christians. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we would say, we want you to take Christ, but not take communion today. We want to walk with you 
This is a meal for believers. So I'm going to pray for us. Give us a chance to uh, search our own hearts. And then when I'm done praying, I want you to come forward and the ushers will be here and we'll receive communion. Let's pray. Um, Lord, Jesus, we come to you, our great provider. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we see provision. There is no greater picture in the world of provision and protection than the cross of Christ where you provided what we needed. What we needed was a perfect person and you were that. What we needed was a willing sacrifice and you were that. What we needed was somebody to go in our place and be our substitute. And you said, I will do that. And you provided all of those things, Lord. And then you've protected us. You've protected us from Satan, sin, and death at the cross. You've protected us from the coming wrath of God. And communion is just a symbol and sign of that. I just want to give people just a moment right here, Lord. If there's somebody that they need to forgive, we... <sighs> Forgiveness in part is no longer letting what someone else did define you. We just want to give it to you, Lord. We want to be forgiven people, forgive people. We're going to forgive. But if there's someone that we want to reconcile and need to reconcile with, I pray that we would commit to that. Lord, if there's some sin that is a besetting sin in our life that we are falling in love with, that it's leading us right into the heart of a storm, Lord, I pray we would right now soften our hearts, repent of it, and that together as a church family, we would come together to receive. As, as, as the gospel is received, so is the bread and so is the cup. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.